Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Brendan Burns Show. Today, I am so excited to introduce Dr. Ali Benazir, who is currently 75 kilometers north of Helsinki, Finland right now. He'll be back in Helsinki, then he's traveling to the Biohacker Summit. This guy is amazing. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. My pleasure. So we have a lot to talk about. You're known as the happiness engineer. And when I saw that title, I was so excited to reach out to you. And I'm so glad we're doing this. But before we get into that and public speaking and your dating coaching and, and all of these amazing things you've done, why don't we take a step back, start from the beginning and tell us your story. So the kind of meandering steps that got me to this point right now, yeah, absolutely. Where, okay, where are you sure. from? What was your original uh, career path? Where did you get started? So let's let's start with college. I'm not going to go all the way back to spermatozoa. Let's just start with college because <laughs> uh, that's probably where it's relevant. And and I always thought I'd go, I was going to be a scientist. Was studying physics, was studying uh, neuroscience, biology, all that stuff. Uh, went to med school with the idea of becoming a professor. And gradually, I realized, well, you know. Uh, as much as I've always wanted to become a scientist and I love reading about science and, and, uh, and was interested in learning about it, I realized that the actual doing of the science was very different from reading about it. And that's one of the big realizations of people uh, when they enter a career, which is that they have this idealized notion of what it is, but really it's like parenthood. You really, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into until that baby comes out. They're like, Oh shit. So, um, so I go to med school. I'm like, you know, this, this medicine thing, I'm, I'm not cut out for it. I go work in a lab. I'm like, hmm, I'm not cut out for that either. Infinite patients, you know, perpetual failure. I mean, no guarantee of reward backstabbing colleagues. I don't think so. So, uh, I transitioned out into doing other things and, uh, I had an entrepreneurial event. So I did a little bit of that and I moved to Boston. Uh, and then for a little while, I ended up with a, a corporate job with McKinsey, uh, doing cons uh, biotech consulting, uh, biomedical companies and got that experience as well. Realized that really wasn't me either. And that's when I realized that, I need to put my money where my mouth is. If I'm a true entrepreneur, then what I need to do is to start my own thing. And I had some friends who'd written books and started businesses around teaching people and they succeeded and were actually uh, helping people and also making a living. And I thought, all right, well, if they can do it, that this is worth a try. So that's when I uh, wrote my first book. It was called the Tao of dating the thinking man's enlightened guide to success with women. And it did reasonably well and it supported a business. And then I wrote a second book, this one for women, uh, the Italian dating, the smart woman's guide to being absolutely irresistible. And eventually it became the highest rated dating book on Amazon for four years straight. And it's probably what I'm best known for. And as I was counseling these people for the past uh, 13 years, so since 2005, I've been, I've been writing about uh, dating and relationships and, and, and I realized that people are often chasing down symbols of happiness instead of the real thing. So what people really want is fulfillment and fulfillment is a set of feelings. It's not a person. And yet people are chasing down some dude who is a certain height, has a certain kind of job, has a certain kind of hair color and, or some girl who has a certain bus size and a certain height and a certain ethnicity. And in the end, it's about fit and about these two people having a certain alchemy together that ends up in the flourishing of both parties as opposed to, Hey, I got my checklist. And I saw so many of these people with checklists. I mean, if you've done these things, if you've done this for 13 years, you get to see the pre during and after 
you know, they end up in disastrous relationships. They end up getting divorced and they end up adding to their unhappiness massively. You know, a little blip of happiness in the beginning with like, yes, I got what I think I wanted, but that's one of the biggest disappointments of life, which is to get what you think you wanted and then realizing, oh crap, it's not what really makes me happy. In fact, I'm pretty miserable. And so writ large to the rest of people's lives, I realized that people are doing this kind of thing all the time. So McKinsey was this plum job and all my friends and family are like, wow, you're so lucky. Good job. I mean, I did 10 interviews to get it. How do I turn them down after I've been through 10 interviews? You can't. Uh, but then once you're in it, you realize I'm an indentured servant. I'm a glorified slave and my life sucks. So never doing that again, by the way. So, uh, and so many people chase down the symbols for true success in life. And the symbols are in a nutshell, status, money, power. And so much of Western society is oriented and all of the studies too, I guess so much of it is oriented towards the acquisition of status, money, and power. And yet let's see how much happiness and fulfillment that actually brings people. And I say happiness, which is really shorthand for long-term well-being. Uh, the technical term is subjective well-being, but really I'm talking about a good life. I mean, are you healthy? Do you have good relationships? Are you fulfilled? Is your work meaningful? So uh, I've boiled all this thing down to five big areas, which I call the five pillars of joy. And they are uh, relationships above and beyond everything else, uh, meaningful work, sleep, mental fitness, and uh, diet and exercise. So these are five areas that if you get them wrong, you will be miserable, guaranteed. And if you get them right, you're basically basically going to be okay. Are you going to be like skipping through the fields and singing, oh, I'm so happy? That's not the kind of happiness I'm talking about. I'm talking about establishing a robust life that, that predisposes you to growth, happiness, well-being, and also radiating that out to the people around you. And so one of the, one of the questions people ask me a lot is, Hey, this happiness thing, isn't it a little selfish? I mean, why should I just be concerned about my happiness? There's a whole world out there. And the thing I say is like, look, we are all little nodes embedded in networks without the network. You don't even exist. And you're constantly affecting everybody else and all these other nodes that connect to you. So there are these guys, Nick Christakis and, uh, and his colleague, they, they showed that if you get fat, you increase the chance of your friends getting fat by like 35% and their friends by 17%. It reverberates throughout the network. If you wow. quit smoking, the, the chance of me quitting smoking goes up by like 50% and you know my, my friend by another 20%. So we're talking second, third degree effects. So when you become happy, when you become healthy, when you become this, this picture of flourishing, guess what? That reverberates throughout the network too. Other people feel like, Hey, I feel better. This guy's setting an example for health and happiness and well-being that I can aspire to. And you become a catalyst to other people's growth. So it's like totally not selfish. It's the most altruistic thing you can do. Go forth, be happy and healthy and, uh, and well. Wow. That's amazing. The, uh, you know, I've heard the quotes and I've implemented it in my own life of surround yourself with who you want to become, go spend time with people who are like-minded, but I didn't know the science backed that up, that if you lose weight, your friends will lose weight at a higher likelihood. And then their friends, that third degree connection, that's unbelievable. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, and 
you know, people, that's one of the, one of the downsides. And we can talk about when you discuss like the first pillar, which is relationships, which is like so much of Western society and success has been about isolation and the richer you get, the more isolated you get. The sign of success is, Hey, I have my own place. And most of these people don't even know who their neighbors are. And, uh, which I have to realize is that if you are not connected, you basically don't exist. I mean, the way that they really punish people in ancient days was not, was not execution. It was exile. They'd send them away. Uh, So, and people are voluntarily exiling themselves in the midst of the greatest affluence that the world has ever known, which is bizarre if you think about it. So, uh, if you are connected, then that means that, you know, all this stuff feeds into each other and we're constantly learning unconsciously and, and, uh, also sending out information to other people and affecting their lives too. That's unbelievable. So I want to get into the five pillars of happiness, but first a quick question on your journey of discovering I'm curious at what age and how did you discover that it was fulfillment and it, it, it's all these things, these pillars that, that enables people to be happy or fulfilled and not the status, hunger, power, because most people spend their entire lives chasing that and then they get to the end and they realize, oh, wow, this is not what I wanted. How did you discover this? At what age did you have any seminars or books or just personal experiences that got you here? Hmm. Good question. Uh, like a lot of this stuff is unconscious knowledge. So if I told you this is where I think it came from, I'll probably be wrong, but I have some hunches. And, uh, one of them was just getting acquainted with Taoism, the Tao Te Ching specifically. So back in med school, back, back when I was a kid in LA, I worked in bookstores for years and I'd see all these books that I'd shelve. And I'm like, what the hell is this thing about? So there was the Tao of Pooh and people kept on buying it. I'm like, what is this shit? Right. I mean, why do people why do people keep on reading this? And so finally in med school, I pick it up and the whole thing takes like maybe 45 minutes to read. It's incredibly, uh, it's incredibly compact. And you know, there's a lot of space between the lines in the book. So I'm like, all right, I can do this. So I read this. I was like, Whoa, that really has the ring of truth to it. So who just knows how to be who just is, and he's happy. I'm like, all right, that's interesting. So then I had to go to the source text, which is the Tao Te Ching, and they had the Stephen, Stephen Mitchell transition over at the UCSD Medical School bookstore. So uh, I picked that up and read it. I'm like, whoa, and it just little bursts of of explosions inside my head uh, with truth. And you know, for example, there is this one chapter, chapter 36, I believe, which says. Uh, before you can get rid of something, you must allow it to flourish before you can get rid of something, uh, before you can uproot something, you must allow it to grow before you can take something, you must allow it to be giving. This is the subtle understanding of the way things are. The slow overcomes the fast, the soft overcomes the hard, Let your inner workings remain a mystery. Just show the world the results. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Before you can take something, you must allow it to be given. The software comes to the heart, but then immediately the brain comes up with these examples of how it's true. See these vast sandy beaches and they all came about because the softest thing in the world, water, overcame the hardest thing in the world, rock, and just ground the rock down. The water won. So the whole notion of water, the whole theme of water is one that reverberates through all of Taoist thought, which is the idea of infinite flexibility and also being super humble, which is water takes the lowest possible uh, place in the ground when it's, when, it's, when it's moving. And as a result, it can overcome everything. So all this paradox and stuff really got, jogged my 
my 20, 22 year old brain. And so I pursued this stuff further and got into meditation and yoga and all that. But, but also part of it was being part of this cohort of very high achieving people, namely uh, Harvard college kids. And these are people like I was who are just designed to perform. And I'm not even sure if they know why, but they're just like achieve, achieve, achieve. And so I got to see the longitudinal study of what happens to these people as they keep on achieving. And, you know, some of them do well and they're happy, but a lot of them just weren't. And you see a lot of divorce, a lot of, you know, eating disorders, a lot of depression. And I'm thinking, hmm, is this the answer? And, and then you live in places like Los Angeles or New York where people are super affluent. And I knew these people and I knew the inside stories of how they were totally miserable. It's like, well, if you're doing so well and you're so successful, uh, why are you hooked on Coke and have been divorced twice? This doesn't make a lot of sense. So, so I, I decided that there's something to be said about the actual feeling of fulfillment as opposed to the, the faux, faux fulfillment, faux, faux fulfillment. Um, <laughs> I like that. We just made a new word. Oh, and, 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 and I think another part of it was just like at a certain, uh, early on, I, I quit watching TV. And when you quit watching TV and then you walk into somewhere like a bar or a home where TV is on, and then you see ads being played, it's really jar because the ads are designed to make you feel inadequate. It means, Hey, you need this in your life. Otherwise you're not complete. That's what an ad is. So, um, and I realized that a lot of this stuff is just in the air. It's in the ambiance and it's in the environment and people just assume that's the way things should be. And I realized that it doesn't have to be that way. You can have choice, uh, and you can redesign your life. You can engineer your life such that it inclines you towards happiness. So long answer there. Uh, some of the factors I think were involved. No, that's really interesting that you say that because I resonate with the high competitive environments. Like when I was at Cornell law school, seeing a lot of that, but even going back to my stepfather who on the surface was this successful celebrity lawyer and had millions of dollars and drove a Bentley and had a Rolls Royce. But I saw the behind the scenes of how depressed he was and it turned into addiction and it flared out. And then I guess when I got to wall street and I saw all of my friends saying, well, this sucks. I hate working a million hours and I hate walking for working for abusive people, but that promise of all the money. And I'm, I'm actually lucky in a lot of ways that I saw not, obviously not all people with money are unhappy, but I saw a lot of people, including my stepfather who had the wealth and also the depression and addiction. So that's really awesome that you were able to see that at an earlier age. Um, the five pillars of happiness. I'd love to hear more about that, especially relationships, why that's the first pillar and, and, you know, how can people create a better relationship pillar in their life to engineer? Yeah. Yeah. That, that one's huge. So of the five, the first one, the relationship one is head and shoulders above all the rest. And all the studies that you encounter, all these books you read, they say the same thing, which is that happiness is love. Happiness is robust relationships. And uh, the most definitive study is probably the grant study, which was conducted and is still going on uh, on the classes of 1929 to 1933 at Harvard, which included such luminaries as Norman Mailer and John F. Kennedy. And these people have been followed for 78 something years. Right. And basically what they've concluded that is that if you have good relationships, not only is that the prime thing that makes you happy, but it makes up for so much else. And if you were miserable before, but then you have a good relationship, 
it just brings you back up to a whole whole new level of happiness. So, and robust relationships. I mean, that's we're, we are hyper social beings. There's no question about that. So I, I talk about uh, the primary love relationship and then friends and then family and the importance of each one. And the primary love relationship, that's obvious. You either have one or you don't. And if you do have one, uh, what I recommend is to establish what I call novelty nights. So people talk about date night, which is all well and good. However, I want to take it to 11, one step further. So novelty night is you decide that once a week with your partner, you're going to do something new. Because what I've noticed is that the biggest problem with relationships, especially long-term ones, is that people start to take one another for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, that's my husband there, also known as the furniture, right? Or, oh, my wife, yeah, yeah she, she does stuff for me, whatever, right? As opposed to, holy shit, here's this miraculous being that I was so into when I met him or her, and I am so stoked to be with her. And the fact that we've been together 20 years, that makes it even better. But, of course, that's not how our neurology works. Our neurology is very good at getting used to things. You adapt, you habituate, and so you need a little something to jolt it. And that little something is called dopamine. The way you get dopamine is through novelty and excitement. Um, also cocaine, but I don't necessarily recommend that. So, <laughs> so novelty night means that you make a list of stuff you're going to do with your partner for the next, you know, infinite number of weeks. And it's always something new. Hey, let's go get some archery lessons. Let's go uh, learn how to do pottery. Let's go to this completely new part of the state and hike. Let's go on a trip to, I don't know, some really cool place in Mexico. Um, let's go to a church we've never been to. Whatever it is, something novel that you can do together. Let's go do acroyoga. For anybody, there, there's an infinite number of stuff that they haven't done yet. And it can be as simple as learning how to cook a new dish together. But the idea is that this activates all those circuits in the brain of novelty and excitement. And that becomes associated with your partner. And suddenly you look at your partner, you're like, Hey, you are novel and exciting today. So, um, and that is what we're trying to kind of bring here. Mm. So, so that's, yeah, that's amazing. The, the dopamine through novel experiences in the love relationship. Now, if someone's listening right now and maybe they don't have a love relationship and I want to ask you about your dating and books and then how people can create that, but let's put their love relationship on hold. What about the friends and the family's bucket? How can people improve yeah. those relationships? Yeah. So, so the top line advice for the relationships category, the relationship pillar is make it a priority. Not only make it a priority, make it the priority because it is, it is the thing. So most people, they will prioritize career over relationships. And I'm here to help Americans change that paradigm and make relationships the thing that is supported by the career because that's the way things should be. I think Europeans, for the most part, have that down, especially in places like Italy and Spain, although the American style is is starting to infiltrate their, their psyches too. So... The thing you do is you make sure the relationship comes first. So given the choice between staying at work a little longer to work on the report or coming home to have dinner with your spouse and family, come home early. Working on a Saturday, nope. And, and this also means setting boundaries. So a lot of these people, they're really determined to succeed at work. And so, you know, at home at night over the weekend, they go to work over the weekend, any number of relationship that around it and 
make the relationships a priority. This also means showing up, especially for your friends. So what happens to a lot of people, especially when they have a job and also a primary relationship, is that they forget their friend. Life right there, that is what makes life interesting and sweet and, and fun. The other practice that I recommend is Friends Day Wednesday. So if it rhymes, it must be true. So, hey, Friends Day, it's Wednesday. Let's do this. And the idea is most people, they're really good at showing up to a whole bunch of bullshit meetings that they put on their calendar. So if you're good at stuff that's on your calendar, then put this on your calendar too. So once a week, Wednesday is a good day. It could be any other day you want, but make a point of connecting with a friend, preferably in person. So I know for some people it's just not possible, but put in the effort and make the Friends Day Wednesday a thing. It could be a group thing. Say, hey, Friends Day Wednesday, every Wednesday at a certain place, or you change the location, you become the hub for that, your friends show up. There's so much uh, casual contact that used to be possible in the town square, in the village lane. I mean, people used to bump into each other all the time. When you're in college, dining hall, hallway, library, right? And that's what really enriched life. And when you have these siloed lives, you get in your little steel cage, whether it's a car or, or a train, you go to work, you come back, you're just not going to bump into friends as much. So engineer the bump-ins, make them happen, make them a priority and make it the centerpiece of your life. Throw dinner parties, become the hub, whatever it takes, be social, and then family. So uh, with family, there's a lot of conflict sometimes. And, and if you don't repair it, nobody's going to, right? So you initiate the repair process. You initiate the forgiveness, whatever it takes. And also schedule it in. Make sure it happens. And you have siblings, get closer to them. Hey, you know, I could certainly be better at that. Uh, you have parents, talk to them, show up, visit them, go there for a few days. Treat them like they're also people, not just parents, but the point is to enrich these relationships deliberately and put the same amount of time you put in these things, which actually enrich your life, that you already put in things that don't enrich your life, like meetings. So that's, that's amazing. So I, I, I love just the overall theme here, which is take uh, action, put in more effort, take responsibility, be the leader, be the hub. That's, that's amazing. And that's why it's engineering. You're designing the life you want. You're baking it into your life as opposed to leaving it to chance, which is most, most, what most people do. And it doesn't really work that well. Yeah. Yeah. And I see people leave everything to chance, their career, their friends, their relationships. And so I love that. And uh, I also love the sort of analogy because when I, when I was in high school or when I was in college, like you said, all the people are around, it happens organically. And as someone, for example, just me, I have my own business and my employees are mostly working remotely. So that's just another added layer of having fewer interpersonal relationships organically. Mm -hmm. And um, so I guess just one other question on, on the friendship. So how do you, especially like as I've gotten a little, a little bit older, I've had some you know friends get married and pair off and you see that people, especially in the United States where I live, People are very all consumed with work. So even if I make a deliberate effort and say, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go find friends, I'm going to be the leader of the hub. And then you go text everyone and everyone's like, sorry, I've worked. Sorry, I told my wife or my husband or whoever I would do this. How do you not get frustrated and give up? And how do you stay persistent and hungry and say, look, relationships are important. I'm going to go find other people. I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. I'm not going to just get frustrated and blame this on other people being busy. 
Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And that may be one of the reasons why I left the country for a while, because, you know, there I'm in San Francisco and people who request my company don't show up like three times out of four. It was bizarre. Uh, and there's been a demographic shift, I believe, and people just don't show up as often and they're not as good as their word as often. So this makes it very difficult if you're trying to be the person who makes stuff happen. So, um, so what do you do for, for hub burnout? It's like, ah, I tried so hard, but people still don't show up. And that's why I recommend the whole hub system, because if it's just one person and that person flakes, then you're left, you know, uh, all by yourself. And, uh, there's, what do you do? But if you are the hub and 10 people are supposed to show up, even if five don't show up, you still get that relationship juice. You still get that interaction. You still get that coming up. And then people realize, Hey, this is a thing. This is people are expecting me to show up and it's fun. I'm missing out. So that'll be incentive for them to show up. So I don't have a solution yet uh, other than just shaming people publicly. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I used to have these big parties in my apartment and I'm starting to do that again now where I say, Hey, everyone come over to my rooftop. We'll have drinks. We'll go out to dinner. And then it's not like, Oh, I'm waiting for one person to respond and show up. And then it's just like, I'm going to invite a bunch of people and then whoever wants to come and have fun. And then it just becomes like an overflow. So I I love that, that hub analogy. And uh, so I guess moving on in, in the well, pillar. I actually do have one recommendation. If people are interested in, in getting really good at this, there's a book that just came out. It's called The Art of Gathering by Priya. I mean, I mean let's, let's get this right here. Priya Parker? Yes, Priya Parker. There you go. I can Google faster than you. I'm not, I didn't read it. You are good. Okay, good. So, <laughs> yeah, so she's in New York City. She does events. And uh, whoa, what happened here? Did I lose you? No, I'm here. I, I can't see the video. Um, All right. And yeah, so Priya Parker, amazing, really good. And the whole about of the whole thing about doing it deliberately, about uh, just making it something that people really value and are transformed by. So every gathering becomes more meaningful, and every gathering builds on the next one. Um, so some really good recommendations in there. Love it. So crucial. I'm, I'm all about the interpersonal relationships and that's amazing. So let's just hit the, uh, the meaningful work thing. So that's something I see so much, especially in the U S when you were talking about McKinsey and your experience doing that, how does uh, the meaningful work stack up on the, as in the pillars of happiness and what's the low hanging fruit and advice that you give people to engineer a little bit more happiness on that pillar? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the low-hanging fruit, by the way, because this book is all about the low-hanging fruit. So most books on happiness, they, they talk about 250 different things you can do to make your life like 0.3% better. Hey, make your bed in the morning. Hey, have a gratitude journal. Hey, smile uh, on your way to work. Uh, yo, if you don't fix the big stuff, it doesn't matter how much you smile on your way to work. If you're like in the middle of a divorce and you're 300 pounds overweight and your boss hates you, you got other issues. So um, ain't no amount of making your bed in the morning is going to make up for it. So we are talking about low hanging fruit that makes big differences. And so uh, when it comes to work, you know, uh, the the statistics are sobering. They say like 80% of Americans are not happy with their work. And a lot of people, you know, let's face it, they go and have these jobs to uh, make the cash to pay the bills so they can then have some fun of the weekend and then repeat on Monday. And I'm not sure if that's the way to live. Like 80% of your life 
given to a cause that you don't really believe in. So there's two kinds of work in the world. One is fulfilling uh, the dreams of other people. That's called a job. And the other is fulfilling your own dreams, which is called calling. So most people may not be in a position to just get up and leave their jobs and go and pursue their calling, become entrepreneurs. So there's stuff you can do within a job to make it more meaningful. And um, there's this lady and she calls it job crafting. Amy Reznievsky. I will not try to spell her name because it's a Polish name and it's like 25 letters long. It starts with a W. But anyway, Amy Reznievsky. So she talks about job crafting, which means that within your job, you can add meaning to it. So most, a lot of the jobs uh, that people have, they're not directly dealing with serving people and they're not directly dealing with purpose and meaning. So what do you do? Um, I, I, I'm reminded of the story of the, of the three stonemasons where a guy comes by and asks him, Hey, what are you guys doing? The first one says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying stones here. I was like, all right, fine. Second guy is like, what are you, what are you doing? He says, um, I'm building a church. And he's like, all right, cool. The third guy said, what are you doing? He's like, ah, I'm building a house of worship for people to come and commune uh, with nature and God for centuries to come. He's like, all right. So one guy had a job, the other had a career, and the third had a calling. So how do you get yourself a calling? And you can create something that's more meaningful within your job. You can mentor somebody. You can find a charity that your job may be uh, contributes to, you can, you can do 10 hours a week, uh, sorry, 10 hours a month of public service. That's the sweet spot. 10 hours more than that. People get burnout less than that, not getting the maximum dose. So 10 hours a month of public service, and you're going to feel better about all the stuff that you do. You can also plan on leaving your job in say like a year or two and becoming an entrepreneur, doing something that's more meaningful for you. Hey, you get one life, man. Uh, you sure you want to spend it all? Uh, helping other people's dreams get there. I mean, you can have a job at Google making, you know, 500 K a year, but you're not Sergey and you're not Larry. It's not your company. You're fulfilling their dreams. So uh, be honest with yourself as to what truly fulfills you. And, and if you are young and you can orient yourself towards that, then that's what you should do. By the way, follow your passion. Terrible advice. Because passion by definition is something that dissipates and goes, you know, peters out. So, uh, following your passion, you know, it's been bandied about, but what really works is following your talent. What are you good at that the world needs more of? So cultivate that, get good at it. And what's people with the scientists have found out is that people start to enjoy more the stuff that they're good at. That happens all the time. So there could be something right now that you have no idea how to do. It could be programming. It could be web design. It could be, I don't know, it could be designing skirts, who knows, but uh, pottery, but everybody is infinitely talented, I think. And people just sell themselves short. And if you start doing something right now on the side, in two years, you could be an expert. You could be really good at it. People talk about 10,000 hours, which by the way, Malcolm Gladwell gets completely wrong. It's not 10,000, but in just a thousand hours and just 200 hours, you can get really, really good at something. So maybe not world-class, but you don't have to be world-class to enjoy it and make a living. So recognize that there's a lot of possibility out there. Recognize that within your job, there's opportunities to craft it. And of course, if you're an entrepreneur, wow, then you can just really design around the thing that makes you happy and really fulfills you and is meaningful and serves people because it's all about service. 
If you have an extractive job, you are putting an absolute upper limit to how happy you can be. But if you're serving people, making them happy, making them grow, especially if it's one-on-one, like as a writer, it's tough because I don't see the people's faces when they actually benefit from my work, which is so important for me to like do public speaking and see them. Um, but if you do have interaction, that is the essence of how humans are designed to be cooperative individuals that allow a society to flourish. It's amazing. So people don't need to quit their job tomorrow and go follow some crazy passion to be happy and do meaningful work because that's what I see a lot of is, Oh, Brendan. Yeah. You've done it. You've built your own business, your own career, but I could never do that. So therefore I'm going to stay in my accounting job for the next 50 years. Yeah. Hey, look, if you've got a wife and 2.3 kids, you got bills to pay and they're in private school. I totally dig, man. You've got your accounting job. It gets, it gets the wheels moving and you're not in a position to just take off. That said, are you in a position to be somewhere in three years, in even five years where you can do something else? And uh, most people don't think that far ahead. Most people underestimate what they can do in five years. They overestimate what they can do in one year. So think about that three to five year plan. Where can you be in the year 2021, right? And, and also, you know, think about your, if you reduce your, your me, if you have the same means, but you reduce your wants, suddenly you're rich. So that's a big part of this whole happiness engineering, which is living within your means and, and reducing your preferences and wants because you don't need a lot to be happy. Uh, to be clear, lack of money will make you miserable. No question about that. However, uh, an, an overabundance of money is no guarantee of happiness if you're getting the other things wrong. Yes. Well said. So uh, the, the last three pillars, sleep, mental fitness, diet, and exercise. I'd love to hit sleep. I've read oh, yeah. about it. I, I see all the time, especially in New York, people souped up on caffeine, getting five hours of sleep per night, telling crazy, me important. would love to hear your whole take on sleep and, and that aspect. Of yeah. It. So I've been researching sleep for a long time. And I've, I've also been a subject of the research myself and, and sleep is like totally not optional and people use it as if it's some kind of bank, you know, uh, savings account they can withdraw from and then never put back in again, or maybe put something back in three months from now. And it really doesn't work that way. When you lose an hour of sleep, it's gone. It does not come back. And if you think you can uh, short sleep by two hours a night, so six hours a night from Monday through Friday and then make it up on Saturday and Sunday, you're basically saying you are going to get up at 2 PM on Saturday and Sunday, which never happens. So you're not going to make up those eight hours, 10 hours uh, over the course of the weekend. And even if you do, the damage is done. Short sleeping for three or four nights in a row basically makes your metabolism pre-diabetic. It affects uh, not sleeping enough, affects your cognitive abilities, laying down memories, learning, affects your, obviously your endocrine system. Uh, it affects your mood. I mean, you've seen the sleep deprived people, they're crabby as crap. So uh, it affects everything. So, and it took Ariana Huffington, like basically collapsing at her desk and banging her head and getting a giant gash to realize, Oh, maybe the sleep is actually important. So you don't have to have a catastrophic event like falling asleep behind the, the wheel of a car doing 65 miles an hour, uh, and crashing in order to wake up to the fact that sleep is of paramount importance. So the key top line recommendation I have for sleep is 
go get a sleep study to figure out where you are right now. So quantity and quality of sleep, most people don't know what it is because while sleep is happening, they're asleep, they're unconscious. So you have no idea. So go and find out what the story is. These wrist actimeters that people buy, you know, um, jawbone, whatever, they're not, they're not as good as, as what they do with the serious sleep lab. And you don't have to stay overnight at the sleep lab. They'll give you this thing you can wear, you bring it home, then you give it back to them. They download the data. They'll tell you what's going on. And for me, that was a revelation. I found out that I was waking up 232 times a night. So that's called, yeah, that's called severe obstructive sleep apnea. So ever since I was a kid, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. It was like, oh, just dragging. And I just thought, I must be lazy, right? Um, and turns out, no, I was not breathing. That was the problem. And you can feel pretty run down at 8 a.m. in the morning if you have not been sleeping well. So when you have sleep apnea, basically your airway collapses. Every time you're trying to take a breath, you're, you have to put a special effort into it. Your body has breakthrough breath just to open up the airway, and that causes you to kind of wake up a little bit. And so you never go into that deep, slow-wave restorative sleep. And so for years, I wasn't even dreaming. And this had this, I, several times I almost crashed in broad daylight. I'm falling asleep behind the wheel of a car doing 65 miles an hour. And I realized this is not sustainable. So I wasn't doing it deliberately, but there are people out there doing that deliberately. They're staying up late. They're juicing themselves up with caffeine and maybe cocaine. And they just think that oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. No, dude, if you don't sleep, you will be dead far sooner than you thought. Cut that out eight hours a night absolutely sacrosanct and sleep hygiene is key. So you want to not look at blue light emitting things an hour or two before sleep. That would be your cell phone or your computer screen. Uh, you don't want to be drinking alcohol at least two hours before you go to bed. No caffeine after three or 4 PM. The half-life of caffeine is six hours. So even a cup at 4 PM can potentially keep you up and totally dark, uh, bedroom and keep it a little cooler, like uh, 68 or lower, uh, 65, they say is like the perfect temperature for, for bedroom. So all these things about sleep hygiene make a big, big difference. Uh, the most, the most common thing that people do is they're looking at a blue light emitting object like their phone. Uh, iPhone has, uh, that thing where it, uh, in your computer too, where it brings it down, makes the light a little bit warmer, but still it's not a complete solution. So just be mindful of that. Watching TV, all these things, blue light going into your, uh, going into your optic chiasm, changes the melatonin secretion and takes away your good sleep. I love it. It's amazing. So one other question is, let's say someone is being methodical about this. They're getting in bed early, no blue light They're, you know, but for whatever reason, maybe unrelated to physicality, maybe it's more emotional or the mind, yeah, or yeah. for example, I get in bed 10 o'clock sleep eight hours, but wake up and feel like crap. And I've woken up a lot. It's not sleep apnea. Um, mm. so any, anything else to get like deep, peaceful sleep, maybe from an emotional or lower stress standpoint? Yeah, of course. If you have stress, if you have anxiety, that's, that will affect sleep. And there's a bunch, there's onset insomnia. Uh, there's, there's insomnia, you know, waking insomnia. There's all kinds of insomnia, which is why I recommend getting that sleep study to get a baseline. Cause what they, what they get is a recording of, of your brain and also a sound recording of what your body's doing. And that way, you find out what's actually going on. Uh, and, and at least it gets you started. If you have a sleep, serious sleep disorder, you can get it treated. So the sleep apnea thing 
9% of all women and 24% of all men have it. It's the number one underdiagnosed. It's the number one chronic disease in the world and it's the number one underdiagnosed disease in the world. So uh, people need to go check that out. And if it's anxiety related uh, and also certain drugs, uh, they may interfere with proper onset of sleep. So all these things, there are sleep specialists. I recommend that you consult them. I am not one of them. Um, I'm kind of an evangelist uh, who directs you to the proper resources. Amazing. I, I love that. I can vouch for sleep being so powerful. I'm one of the, probably more in the minority of people who've gotten eight hours since high school or whenever. I love it. What does mental fitness mean? Yeah. So the, uh, the whole happiness engineering program was going to be about mental fitness, basically meditation, mindfulness, and stuff like that. But then I realized that it's not enough. And also there's like five gazillion books on them and people are tired of hearing about meditations. Like, dude, you want me to meditate? Everybody tells you meditate. Meditation is lame, man. Um, so I call it mental fitness because I think people get the idea that they don't want to be, you know, this big, blob of out of shapeness like Jabba the Hutt, right? That will not make them happy. If people give them a choice between being flabby or fit, they'll say, I want to be fit. No brainer, right? And how do you become fit? You exercise. Also no brainer, pretty straightforward, right? So the question is, would you like to have a mind that is fit or flabby? And most people would say, flabby brain doesn't sound too appealing. I'll go with fit. What do you do to have a fit mind? You exercise the mind. How do you exercise the mind? The thing that is the exercise for the mind is meditation. And the analogy is almost exact because you have all these different kinds of exercise. You have like high intensity interval training. You have running, you have swimming, you have yoga, booty, ballet. And with meditation, you have all kinds of different meditation. You have focus meditation. You have uh, op- uh, open receptivity meditation. You have open awareness meditation. You have uh, loving kindness meditation. You have giving and receiving Tong Len, you know, reduction of suffering meditation. So all these different kinds of meditation affect different parts of the brain and have different end effects for the people that were doing it. Uh, and the incontrovertible fact is that they make a difference. They make a huge difference in how you deal with your life. And the, the top line benefit of this whole mental fitness thing is stuff just doesn't bother you as much. So whereas before, let's say something of an intensity of, you know, three out of 10 was enough to set you off. Now, three out of 10 doesn't even pierce the armor. It just, it just bounces off. Four out of 10 bounces off. Five out of 10 bounces off. Maybe something like 11 out of 10. Now you're like, oh, I think something hit my armor. So it's, it's like mental armor. It's like this big buffer zone you have that just doesn't allow, uh, the, the, the stuff that's happening in the world to, to bug you as much because you're able to just see it as stuff. You step back and you look at it and you're like, well, it's not really about me, is it? It's just something happening. And you, and if you do it long enough, you start having that attitude about your own emotions. Even you start like seeing somebody in their Bentley and maybe having this pang of envy or something. And then you're like, Oh wow, look at that. Envy. Isn't that interesting? Do I even want to drive a Bentley? They're big, unwieldy beasts that, you know, use way too much gasoline. I'd much rather have a Lamborghini anyway. So um, the point is, or a Prius or whatever makes you happy. So the point is you start to be able to step back from the events of the world, which are all symbolic. And you start to be able to step back from the events happening in your own brain and take them less seriously and identify more with like the TV screen than 
the programming that's happening on it. So your mind is that TV screen. You have this wide open awareness that can accommodate anything, the entire universe. And then there's the programming that happens on it, right? The stuff of the world, like clouds passing through the sky. The clouds are not the sky. The sky is still there. So when you meditate, you're training that awareness. You're training that ability to step back and not take things personally. And therefore, um, you know, you're just less stressed. You're happier. Things don't bother you. You're not you're less anxious. Everything changes. That's amazing. I would probably say other than relationships, this one sticks out to me as so powerful. I, I've always been like a Steve Jobs junkie. So I've always kind of had that meaningful work and I've always slept. And so I guess maybe this resonates so much for me because it's a newer one within the last yeah. several years. Yeah. Uh, and I love that analogy of, uh, of what you say when you're talking about like how things just, they affect you less. It's not yeah. like, like, I feel like people or I've even done this in the past. I've said, you know what? I'm going to start my own business so I don't have to deal with other coworkers and other problems. And I'm going to isolate myself a little bit more. And I'm going to do all these things so I don't have to deal with all the problems in the world. And yeah. what I've noticed is that, like you said, with the relationships, getting really ingratiated and connected with other people is the answer. And inevitably, these relationships or just life in general is going to hit you with stuff. It's not, yeah. about, it's not about avoiding those conflicts. It's about having them and then the mental fitness to, to deal with them and not let them bother you. Is that right? That's, that's exactly what it is. And, and I, and the analogy of fitness is so apt because when you're fit, if you suddenly have to run half a block to catch a bus, you do it and you get the bus and you're cool with it and you don't collapse and die of a heart attack. Right. And so when you meditate regularly, then shit's going to hit the fan without telling you first, right. They're, They're without notice. And when it does, if you are mentally fit, then you're ready to deal with it. You're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And if you're not, it'll hit you much harder. So it's like this, you know, if you meditate once, it's like going to uh, a gym with a personal trainer and afterwards you're sore and great, but you still have to keep on doing it on your own to become fit. So you do this, you just have this baseline fitness. It's there all the time and it is in your service. And it really is a superpower. Once you... Once you have it and you contrast it with where you were before, you're like, oh, wow. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different person almost uh, because you're able to do this trick and science is catching up with all these findings of, of Buddhism and, 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 and yoga, uh, which have been teaching meditation mindfulness for thousands of years. Uh, metacognition is what you are developing. So metacognition is the ability to think about thinking the ability to have thoughts about your feelings. And what happens is when you, ha- when you practice metacognition, you end up having the meta thought instead of the baseline thought, right? So for example, you had the envy by the, uh, of the Bentley driving by, then you can say, oh, I'm curious where this envy comes from. And now you're no longer feeling envy, you're feeling curiosity because your brain can only really experience one emotion at a time. And then after that, you're like, oh, wait, can I find this curiosity funny? Now you're experiencing mirth. Now the whole thing is hilarious, right? So you can take yourself from whatever state you were through this stepladder of metacognition and thereby control the way you feel independent of circumstances. And I believe that is the number one skill of adulthood, which is to be able to think and feel independently of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what yep. mental fitness is. Amazing. So we've talked a lot about some very, very powerful tools to massively shift 
people's lives. Yeah. And one thing that I notice, whether it's with my clients or my friends or whoever, is that like you were saying earlier, people are like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to meditate or I know I'm supposed to go have more relationships. What do you think it is that motivates some people to just get out there and do it? And then, and how can we motivate or how can someone who's listening right now who says, yep, yeah, I know I'm supposed to meditate. I know I'm supposed to go to the gym. I know I'm supposed to do this, but I just don't want to. And like in my life, for example, and when I go to self-improvement seminars, I see people who have hit low lows, like their spouse has died suddenly or their business crashed in one week. Wow. And then they're just like so depressed that they're like, I have to meditate to survive. And that's yeah. like, but, but what about people who have like an okay life who just like don't have the motivation to do these things? How do you get them to do it? Yeah, that is the, that's the central issue, isn't it? And that's why books like mine exist. And that's why people like you and I are in business because mm-hmm. people haven't quite figured this out yet. So uh, my approach is a probabilistic one as opposed to a deterministic one. So there is no one thing that you can do to suddenly become motivated and now you're supermanny doing all these things. However, you can nudge yourself such that you become more and more likely to do certain things. So uh, one thing that works is to become part of a cohort. We're social people. So if you say you're going to go and run with two of your friends at 7 a.m. in the morning you're much more likely to do it than if you decide you're going to do it by yourself just because, right? So, so you deliberately put yourself in a cohort of like-minded people and then you start doing stuff more. So you sign up for a meditation class or yoga class or, or retreat or something that way you have to go. So that's one thing. Uh, another, another hack is to schedule it. So you just stick it on the calendar and now you don't have to think about it. You look at the calendar. Oh, I'm supposed to do this and you do it. So that is another method that, it makes you independent of the idea of motivation because motivation is super not reliable. Motivation just plain does not work. So what this whole book is about engineering habits. So you want to hook the new habits into pre-existing old habits. The way I get to meditate is I do it right after I brush my teeth. So right after I, you know, shower and shave in the morning, boom, sit down, meditate. That's it. It's done. And the crazy thing is, even though I have complete control over my schedule, if I don't do it first thing in the morning, I forget to do it. And there's like 18 hours in the rest of the day and I just don't do it. It's crazy, right? So, but that's the way habits work. And you want to take this out of the realm of thinking, out of the realm of motivation and just make it as automatic as possible. So you hook it into pre-existing habits like brushing your teeth, like having lunch, right? You involve other people. Um, you can raise stakes. So you know, books like The Power of Habit talk about this a little bit by, by Charles Duhigg of how to ingrain new habits. And, and, uh, and also you want to reduce activation energy. So one of the key concepts I used to teach kids when I taught chemistry at Harvard was that this activation energy runs your entire freaking life, okay? So activation energy is that little nudge required to take you over the hump such that that spontaneous reaction that wants to happen does happen. So you gotta, you gotta match the match is not going to catch fire it's on, on its own. You have to strike it. You have to add a little bit of heat and then whoo, flame catches on and it burns. Uh, so same thing with dynamite or anything else. So you have dynamite inside of you. How do you make it such that that activation energy is easy to evoke, uh, easy to access? So you go to bed wearing your gym shorts. You wake up in the morning. It's already there. You put your shoes right there. Sean Acor talks about this about making things like 25% easier or something. And so you just make the habits you want easier and you make the habits you don't want harder. So 
in the last section, which is about uh, diet and exercise, I say, look, the simplest way to change your diet is just not buy the shit you don't want to eat, right? If there is no Haagen-Dazs in the fridge, guess who's not going to pick out an Haagen-Dazs at midnight? You, because it's not there. Something's more difficult. Are you going to get out, go down to the corner store and buy it and bring it? Maybe, but it's just, it's just much harder to do, right? You don't want to have a crack dealer inside your living room. It's much better if the crack dealer is like at least a couple of miles away. So <laughs> I love that. Preferably in a dangerous neighborhood. So, so you change your behavior by making it easy to do the stuff that you really want to do and making it really hard to not to do the stuff that you don't want to do anymore. And then, and then you make, and then you go easy on yourself. You're not supposed to be perfect. You're not supposed to be this machine. And, and this whole like mega super duper optimizing everything is a bit of an alarming trend because people are just stressing themselves out over this stuff and they're like monitoring everything, their heart rate, their steps, their, their diet. It's like, yo dude, live easy. Take, take it easy, man. You know, and you can design your life such that you are oriented towards happiness and wealth and well-being without actually driving yourself crazy. Um, it is possible to go totally nuts and make yourself miserable, uh, in the whole happiness business too, which is, I've seen people do. I love that. Yeah. Just not having a checklist of I have to meditate and do these hundred things today to be happy. And then if I don't, I'm even more stressed out and you're better off just not doing anything. So yeah, I just make, you know, make everything joyous. And if it's not joyous, don't do it. I mean, I, I usually harp on this meditation thing a lot and saying, look, if you're not going to meditate, you're not really serious about happiness. But that said, nothing is supposed to be painful. So, and and ease yourself into it. So a lot of really wise people have had told me that meditation is really cool. It took me 10 years to get started on regular practice. I mean, that's how long it took me. Now, with you and me, uh, you know, egging people on, maybe it'll take people less. And now there's a much larger cohort of people doing it. There's apps for it, you know, Calm app. Um, there's the... Headspace. Uh, yeah, Headspace app. There is the... Uh, what's, what's the other one called? I forget, but that has a lot of meditation recordings on it. So there's e there's ways of easing yourself into these things such that it's super simple, super straightforward, and there are people around you supporting you. So I recommend getting support. I recommend making it easy. And you know, as crazy it is to pick up the most distracting device created in the history of the universe in order to meditate, I think that you know, getting headspace or calm on your phone totally works. It gets people started. So whatever whatever the gateway drug is, I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So diet and exercise, you were talking a little bit about food and setting yourself up for success, no hot yeah. enough freezer, yeah. but what's kind of the general thesis and approach there to yeah. eating? So the, the general thesis is that there is nothing in the world that more reliably and more effectively raises your mood than exercise. Nothing. I mean, it's just amazing. You go out there, you walk, you run a little bit, you come back, you feel better. It's astonishing. And people say over and over again, if exercise were a pill, every doctor would prescribe it. So guess what? You don't need the pill. You can prescribe it to yourself. The trick here is to make it a habit. The trick here is to incorporate it into your daily life. So the same hacks that I mentioned before, uh, tie it to a pre-existing habit, create a cohort of, uh, of accountability, people that you have to show up to. Uh, drop a bunch of money on this. You know, I, in LA, I, I joined this gym that costs 200 bucks a month. It was just one room, but in that one room, you went and did this one 40 minute workout. So for 200 bucks a month, 
hell yes, I'm going to show up. You know, I'm, I'm paying, I was paying more than Equinox. What the hell? Right. So, uh, I will definitely go to that. And so and it didn't hurt that I had friends there too. And I show up and, you know, it's a little camaraderie suffering together, uh, Barry's bootcamp, whatever it takes, just do it. Right. Uh, the key thing is to realize you don't, it doesn't have to be like too crazy. It doesn't have to be like marathons every day, 30 to 40 minutes a, a day makes a big difference. Walking is some of the best exercise you can do. Uh, and you know, we're, we're not talking about becoming, uh, an ultra marathoner here. We're talking about regularly moving your body. Your body is designed to move and, you know, put a timer at work and make sure every 15 minutes or so you stand up, walk around, stretch, do something because yeah, sitting is a new smoking. Uh, you want to be moving as much as possible. So, uh, and then as, when it comes to diet, the key thing is, uh, to eat food, eat real food. I really like Michael Pollan's food rules, which are uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So, you know, it's permissive. It's not too harsh, but also lays out the, the essence of what you should be doing. So eat food, not processed food. If it shows up in a, in a box or a bag and it's processed, you know, chips, candy, whatever, just, just, it's not even food. Don't eat it. Right. Uh, and not too much obvious. And then mostly plants, plant-based diet. It's just much harder to, pack on the calories. If you're eating, if you're eating plant-based diet, it's much easier on the planet, but it's most important, much easier on your body. I mean, there's all these studies that show like, you know, red meat, especially it, it diminishes your lifespan and increases, you know, uh, rate of cardiac disease. Uh, and, and also who knows what goes into factory farmed, uh, meat. It, it may not be entirely healthy for you. Whereas plants, plants straightforward. So eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And the key thing is to just get in the habit of buying the good stuff and not buying the other stuff. And if there's one top line habit that makes the biggest difference in all this is to stop eating out, just eat your own food. Do not eat out because restaurants have a vested interest in having you come back. And the way they get you to come back is by feeding you stuff that's salty, sugary, and fatty, and they don't care about your health. And mm. they don't have to tell you how many calories there are in there, though that may change in the near future. Uh, fast food restaurants now do have to report on calories in their food, but regular restaurants don't. So look, if you have a job that takes you out, you know, you're a consultant, you're a banker, you're whatever, uh, all these dinners and stuff, just do your best to minimize, uh, the outside eating and make sure you pick good stuff, eat salad. If you have to, whatever it takes, just eat food, not too much, mostly plants and eat mostly at home. If at all possible, it's not that difficult to bring your own food to work. So you don't have to eat out. Yes. I love Michael Pollan. I love food rules, the little manual. Yeah. One, of my one of my favorite rules, he says, if it's the same, if the food is the same word in every language, like Big Mac, Dorito, you know, don't eat it. That's funny. Yeah. And another one I like is he says, if your grandma has never heard of it, don't eat it. Dunkaroo, fruit roll up, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, and, and all these industries, they have, they're, they're for-profit industries. So yeah, yeah the book that really, I knew bad stuff was happening. But when you read the book, salt, sugar, fat, it just kind of blows your mind to smithereens. You've got these super smart people hired by the thousands who are working for these food giants whose sole job is to make you eat stuff that's not good for you. Uh, eat stuff that is too fatty, too salty, too sugary, and keep on eating them. So there's a reason why over two thirds of Americans are now overweight. And, you know, it's easy to blame people and their weak will, but that's not the whole story. 
you have these incredibly powerful organizations uh, with really influential media, TV, radio, you know, ads, bright, shiny packaging, cartoon characters, whatever it takes. And they are successfully manipulating everybody to eat stuff that is killing them. So you just have to step back and go, wait a sec, who's in charge here? And, and just shop around the supermarket, go around the, the perimeter and never even bother going inside the aisles where they have all the crappy stuff. So around the court, around the perimeter, they have all the produce. Uh, and that's where you find the good stuff. And yeah, I know maybe we should do uh, field trips to supermarkets, like how to shop at Whole Foods, how to buy good stuff. Cause you know, people think Whole Foods, Oh, that they must have good stuff. It's called Whole Foods, but no, they also have all the junk. I mean, cookies, cookies are poison. I mean, that's how I classify stuff inside my head. It's either food or poison. So Coke is poison. Don't drink it. Water is perfect. There's, you cannot improve upon perfection. Water is perfect. Yeah. How how did you learn all of this? Like for people who are listening right now, who are loving this conversation, you've mentioned a bunch of books. I'm going to put them all in the show notes, but where else do you get your information and where can people go if they want more of this? Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm obsessed with learning about this stuff and, and the science behind it. And I, I was trained as a physician, so that informs some of it. Uh, but new information is coming out all the time, especially about diet and exercise and all that stuff. So, uh, and I read, I don't know, 130, 140 books a year. So, um, try to be as up to date as possible. And so salt, sugar, fat, that's a fantastic resource just to see how this industry works and how everybody is susceptible and how we've been manipulated. And maybe that'll get your, get your ire up and you'll be like, no, I will not be manipulated. So do it for you, do it for your kids, do it for your, your friends and family. Um, did you, did you want more resources or just curious where I get mine? No, yeah, that, that's helpful. And then the next question I was just going to say as, as we get uh, close to wrapping up here is uh, just a quick rundown on the resources that you've created. Both, no, uh, All right. So, yeah. so we've got, uh, for the ladies, we've got the Tao of Dating, the Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Irresistible. And that is a book for smart, successful women who have found challenges in the dating arena. And that is just about all of them because it's challenging out there. It's tough. It's, and the smarter you get, the more successful you get, the tougher it gets because suddenly guys seem to be less interested if you're smarter and more successful. I don't know how that works, but it seems to be a common experience amongst the ladies. So, uh, but wherever you are in your, in your love life, uh, the book is about uh, fulfillment oriented dating. So uh, fulfillment is a feeling, not a person. And also really getting out of the whole mindset of, am I enough? I've received maybe 5,000 letters from, uh, from women over the past uh, 10 years about dating. And they all boil down to one question. And that one question is, am I enough? And that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Because even if you get that question right today, the parameters may change tomorrow, right? If you have a perfect butt today, then tomorrow butt fashions may change. And then you don't have a perfect butt. Now what do you do, right? Now you have to like do your eyebrows too and your nails. And, and instead, I, I encourage people to think, how can I serve? How can I be a light to the world? So be the light. And nobody can take away your power to elevate other people, appreciate other people, and make the world around you a brighter and warmer place. So if you focus on that, you'll basically have your pick of the litter. You will be irresistible because who doesn't want to be appreciated? Who doesn't want to be elevated? Who? And 
if you can make a guy feel like he's 50 feet tall, you've got a monopoly on all guys. So that's what that book is about. Um, and then there's the book for men, which is called the title of dating the, uh, thingy man's enlightened guide to success with women. And I think you can still find that on my website, but I've got it very well buried. So it needs to be revised. I wrote it 13 years ago. The thinking has moved forward, but it's still reasonably useful. Um, so those are the main books. And then if you go to the happiness engineering.com blog, there I have some other resources and, um, and you know, if you're thinking about going to medical school, there's a book called, uh, should I go to medical school? And, um, that'll have the opinions of many people who are in the midst of that decision-making process or in the midst of that career. So that might be helpful. And uh, hopefully by January, 2019, we'll have the happiness engineering book out. You can go to, uh, the website happinessengineering.com and sign up to be part of the editorial panel. So you can help me edit the book, help me, uh, make the book better and more useful for everybody. Uh, and that'll be super useful to me. I love it. Dr. Ali Benazir, you are a legend. This was so helpful. The first thing I'm going to do after this, after I cut it and put it up for the podcast is I'm going to go listen to this whole thing. (laughs) So valuable. So helpful. We got happinessengineering.com. Final question before we wrap up. Because we talked about the importance of the love relationship and relationship in general. Curious what you have taught people and what you tell men and women who let's say have implemented some of your tactics, they're getting out there. Am I enough? Yes. I'm going to go meet someone. But then they're in this cycle of picking partners who are not good for them, either unavailable or traumas from their past. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, and you get out there and and you meet someone who's good for you and let them in and, or, or how do you know what to look for to look for the right things? Yeah. I just read this book a couple of nights ago from Don Miguel Ruiz. um, And really interesting book is that and, the, you know, the whole agreement book pardon me the agreement yeah, it's the whole agreement series so let me, let me pull up the name of the book uh, and and you know he, he talks about he just says this incredible thing which is that hey you say you want the right man or right woman to walk into your life right but if they do you're just going to treat them as poorly as you treat yourself and then you're going to make that person an instrument for your own pain. I'm like, oh my God. That's <laughs> wow. like, okay. He just lays it out, right? So, so first you work on you. The first step is to just kind of figure out, hey, what actually makes me happy? What fulfills me? Is there a pattern to all these abusive boyfriends or girlfriends I've had? Is there a pattern to these relationships that didn't work out, didn't last? And really work on that first. And some people think that, Oh, once I have a relationship, then I'll be happy. Right. But this is the reverse of the way things work. So it's the be do have versus have do be. So be do have as you start out happy, you start out with a content heart, you start out with self-sufficiency, you start out being that fount of light and joy that elevates other people around you. Right. And then from there, once you are that person, then you will behave in the way that person behaves. You elevate people, you make people feel great, and you feel great at the same time. And then you have, you have the friendships, you have the relationships. And most people are oriented in the inverse of that procedure. They're like, oh, if I have a boyfriend or girlfriend, then I can uh, do the things that people with good relationships do, and then I can be happy. But no, you start out with the happy, you start out with you, which is why happiness engineering is the thing because that is the underlying 
um, structure, the, the basis, the entire foundation of being a healthy, happy, desirable person. Does that make yep. sense? hundred percent. That's the, the whole fallacy of, you know, I'm not enough. I'm going to seek salvation with the relationship, which kind of also, yeah. And it plays into the whole, Hey, uh, Dr. Ali, I'm not enough. Let me go find that relationship to be enough. You, you, you complete me is like, that's the worst thing ever. It's like, no, 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 no. You need to be complete first, honey. It's just not going to work. If any woman says, or any guy says, you know, you complete me, that is your sign to run in the opposite direction. Yeah. What do you think about online dating websites and apps? Hmm. Well, I do have a lot of opinions about that. I've written a bunch of articles about it, but the short version is that the purpose of dating, if there were a purpose of dating, is it's basically courtship, the modern version of courtship. And the purpose of courtship is to get accurate information about whether this person in front of you is a good fit. And the problem with online dating is uh, several fold, but the, the main one is you're not getting accurate information because you can have somebody else write your profile. You can work on your profile for days and polish it. So it's, it's, it's optimized, AB tested, whatever uh, you can have pictures uh, from 10 years and 25 pounds ago, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? So it's just not accurate. And human beings have been designed by 3 million years of evolution to convey very honest signals about their uh, desirability and attractiveness, which is basically their reproductive potential. Is this person fertile? Can this person provide? So skin tone, muscle tone, posture, tone of voice, all these things are conveying deep unconscious bits of information that mean something in the whole courtship process. And when you start out with online dating, you're kind of destroying all information and going on hearsay, right? Which is why a lot of people are disappointed when they meet a person in person, like, Oh shit, really? So I, I, that probably hasn't happened to you, but it has happened to other people. The other thing is that we're also commoditizing people when you do online dating, right? When wait, Courtship used to be a months-long process. You, you went and called on people. You left calling cards, and, you know, you worry about the hem of your dress and stuff like that. You know, I, I'm, you see all these old-schooly, like, English movie, romance movies, right? But now it's like, oh, swipe, 0.3 seconds, done, right? So uh, you want to treat people at least as well as you want to be treated yourself. So you are a miracle. You are this thing that is the culmination of the entire 13.4 billion years of creation and, and 3 million years of human evolution and 100,000 generations of humans. You are amazing. You are special. Uh, you're a miracle, right? I mean, you know, one cell became 40 trillion and brought you here. So when you realize that, then it becomes much more difficult to treat other people like a commodity on some app, like, you know, an Uber ride or, or fried chicken or something, just go swipe, right? So you want to treat people well. And that happens in real life. That happens when you give people the time to actually get to know them, which takes um, at least 100 hours to get a good sense of who somebody else is. And, you know, a date, you know, that's why I say, even if you're just like 10% interested in someone on a first date, see them again. If it's not some like total a deal breaker, like, you know, a lifetime member of the Nazi party or something, then show up again, right? See him, see him at least three times because, uh, I'd say over half of the married women that I've spoken to, when I ask them, how did you meet your husband? The first thing they say is, you know, when I met him, I didn't even like him that much. Didn't even like no butterflies, no, you know, violence. Didn't like the guy. I mean, 
So allow that flourishing. And also remember that if you are attracted to a certain type and if you're single, you know, maybe that type thing ain't the right thing for you. So date against your type, date somebody else that you're not usually your type because that type may be some kind of strange attractor, which is both a technical and a poetic term, I think, of your own neuroses and psychoses from childhood that you haven't quite worked out. Exactly. Love it. We are so on the same page here. I would talk for another hour if you're yeah. over it, but I got another recording to do. Dr. Ali Benazir coming in live from not Helsinki, but from Finland. Finland, yes. Oh, by the way, the book by Don Miguelri is The Voice of Knowledge. Voice of Knowledge. Awesome. Short, easy, really good. I mean, of course, obviously, The Four Agreements is awesome, and The Voice of Knowledge builds on that. Boom. I got all these. I got uh, Dalv Poo. I got Art of Art Gathering, How Meat Matters. Um, that was the Priya Parker book. Sugar, yes. Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Giants Hooked Us. And this one, Don Miguel Ruiz, who also wrote The Four Agreements, in the show notes, along with the links to your website. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. You're the man.